We're all bad here at Fashion by Dad, perched on the edge. Uh, Claire Tracy Art is due at any moment in the studio. In fact, she's suddenly appeared before me. Good morning, Claire Tracy Art. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, you know, we need someone to puncture the patriarch's pomposity, (laughs) perhaps push him over the edge. And encourage your uh, alliteration. Uh, indeedly doodly. It's 5am in uh, Brisbane if you are listening on the east coast of Australia. It's 10pm in Latvia if you're listening on the north coast of Europe. How do you say hello in Latvian? Hello. Yeah? Yeah. A <laughs> uh, mixture of German, Swedish and all sorts of local languages. Very funny place, Latvia. Uh, it's midday in Sacramento if you are near the west coast of uh, the US of A, sitting on that fault line uh, listening to us on 4ZZZ.org.au. In 1991, Screen Feeder played their first ever gigs in Brisbane's sweaty underground punk scene. Three decades on, they're still going. Come and help celebrate their 30th anniversary with a special show at the zoo Friday, October 15th. Joining the lineup are local indie rock kids, Mouse. Tickets are available now through ScreenFeeder.com or via Oztix. Screen Feeder, are proud sponsors of 4ZZZ. And on 4ZZZ, you are listening to Fashion by Dad with me, Jeff Ebbs, joined in the studio by Claire Tracy Art. Uh, Pablo Picasso, he was an arsehole. The Jonathan Richmond song. Uh, Ariana Stephanopoulos Huffington has written a book called Creator and Destroyer. One of the quotes from that book uh, regarding the, in the chapter called Goddesses and Doormats. Um, he loved to t- turn goddesses into doormats. Beauty is desired in order that it may be befouled. Batale wrote, not for its own sake, but for the joy brought by the certainty of profaning it. Picasso once confessed that women were divided for him into goddesses and doormats. Few things gave him greater pleasure than transforming goddesses into doormats, and not only did women allow themselves to be trampled on, but they became addicted to the trampling. What do you reckon, Claire's beasts like Picasso the whole Minotaur series was basically a document of um, rape really yeah I feel I mean we just discussed off air that some of this literature is a little bit outdated even though it is feminist literature Um, you know that line that they allowed themselves to be treated like doormats and became addicted to it is problematic in that it describes uh, you know a abusive relationships in a way that kind of normalises them rather than putting the blame back on Picasso. Yes, it does. Um, And that is the history of literature. And I guess that is the problem. Um, So this, we've got another text here uh, that talks about Stravinsky and Stravinsky's lunch where he demanded that his entire family sat silently while he ate so as not to interrupt his very important concentration. Um, And again, the, the author is saying, well, you know, we discussed it with the women around the table, what we thought of Stravinsky's lunch. 
Uh, and as far as we were concerned, we were looking for compromise. We weren't confrontational about it. We wanted to suggest that Stravinsky could have had a maid bring him his lunch on a tray. And I'm like, it really speaks to me that even in this text that is picking apart, you know, these famous male geniuses and their terrible behaviour, the female author is saying, oh, you know, I'm not confrontational and I've discussed it with other women and perhaps he could have been brought his lunch on a tray. Rather than saying, what a right asshole! how dare he treat his family that way? Well, the hilarious thing about that is that I read that very same paragraph to my neighbour. I cooked um, some heart-shaped cupcakes, iced them with lemon icing and put a strawberry on. And then did you demand that you eat them in silence together? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) I was just trying to get to know the neighbours. Anyway, one of my neighbours turned up and I, you know, as I do, I practice my radio banter and so on on innocent victims that I meet on buses (laughs) and in shops and things. And so I um, read that paragraph to her and her reaction was totally the opposite. She was sort of, you know, I I don't think, you know, I don't think we need to go that far. (laughs) There you go. So, I mean, I think uh, the point that uh, who's the author of Stravinsky's Lunch, Drusilla, Mm. um, she's studying a whole lot of female artists and examining why they had a hard time. And the point that she's making through that book is that we have this history of uh, male art because males have had privilege. And it's difficult if you don't have the privilege to have a creative life. So she started with Stravinsky's lunch as an example of the demanding of privilege. Ah, uh-huh, I see. So your argument is that uh, these privileged male artists were behaving in this way because they were felt entitled to? I'm, what I'm saying is that... Um, or what Drusilla is saying is that art requires some privilege to make. People who work in a coal mine and come home exhausted and, you know, don't don't have the energy to make art after work. And that in the way that we've set up society traditionally, only a very small number of very well-off men have the capacity to sit around quietly and compose for four or five hours a day because everyone else is so busy working their tips off in this case. Well, see, I don't know if that's true because there are lots of artists that have made with absolutely nothing, but perhaps they lack the resources to promote their art and the networking to become famous. I did a fantastic art residency in Mongolia and I met uh, in Ulaanbaatar, I met these artists that really just lived uh, one step up from living in the tunnels underneath the city and they were the poorest people I've ever met and they made the most wonderful art. Um, Well, what sort of medium were they using? They were using sculpture um, and then also creating drawings on like hide and bits of paper they could find and I met them through a, a Western curator, a woman, that was trying to take their work to New York But interestingly, the flip side to this was her interest was she was madly in love with one of the artists and he had broken up with her. So this whole idea around her promoting them and taking them on a show to New York was an incredible kind of manipulative power play to get this guy back. 
which mm. she did, I think, mm. at the end of it. It's very hard to get away from self-interest, isn't it? Um, I'm just going to go back to Picasso for a minute, the beast, the rapist. Uh, when I die, Picasso had prophesied it will be a shipwreck, and as when a huge ship sinks, many people all around will be sucked down with it. Uh, Pablito had begged his father to allow him to be present at his grandfather's funeral. Polo, once again drunk, had told him that Jacqueline had categorically refused. On the morning of Picasso's funeral, the grandson who bore his name drank a container of potassium chloride bleach. Why? Uh, miserable. On March 1974, Claude and Paloma and soon after Mayo were recognised as legal heirs. On June the 6th, 1975, Paulo died at 54 of cirrhosis of the liver brought on by drug and alcohol abuse, leaving his two surviving children. And then a little bit of a list of the uh, Picasso pantheon the uh, Pablo Pigat Paolo kind of stuff. On October the 20th, 1977, five days before the 96th anniversary of Picasso's birth and in the year of the 50th anniversary of their meeting, Marie-Therese hanged herself in the garage of her house in Juan Lepin. She was 68 years old. In a farewell letter to Maya, she wrote of an irresistible compulsion. You have to know what his life had meant to her, Maya said. It wasn't just that his dying drove her to it. It was much, much more than that. Their relationship with was crazy. Uh, in June, after, just after midnight on October the 5th, 1986, Jacqueline called Oriolo Torrente, the director of the Spanish Museum of Contemporary Art in Madrid, to discuss the final details of the exhibition of her personal selection of Picasso's paintings that was to open in Madrid ten days later. She assured him that she would be there for the opening. At three o'clock in the morning, she lay upon her bed, pulled up the sheet to her chin and shot herself in the temple. Johnson's epitaph for Shakespeare was that he was not of an age but for all time, and even Salieri would not have withheld that epitaph from Mozart. I began this book feeling that, like the millions of pilgrims to the Picasso retrospectives, all too eager to place him on that narrow peak, and I ended up convinced that he was in fact a time-bound genius, a seismograph for his conflicts, turmoil and anguish of his age. Um, so she felt that he was a destroyer, that he destroyed his family, he destroyed everything, and that his greatest work were works of pain, and that instead of contributing to the good of humanity, all he's really done is mine our darkness. I, I do think it, again, I'm going to use that word, problematic, to kind of encapsulate the idea of someone's genius with the fact that they might be an abusive person um, that is terrible to their family and friends and in their interpersonal relationships. Yes, Picasso was an artist, but it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he was an abuser um, and someone that was, you know, incredibly toxic, just in the same way that someone can be a fireman and can also be a rapist and... Um, you know, I, I really hate the idea that genius somehow permits or um, allows these behaviours in society and that we should look past that because someone was a great artist. So uh, what about the flip? Oh, well, no, no, it's uh, related, I guess. Can someone... I mean, uh, 
what she's trying to say there is that his art is sullied by his your awfulness. So she refuses to disconnect them. Are you, are you saying that they're not necessarily connected? I think, obviously, if someone's famous, it's good to talk about the terrible things they've done um, to balance that against the hero worship that can go alongside fame. But in the same way that I questioned you about using that Michael Jackson clip in the fashion by Dad... We're bad. We're bad. Um, you know, I would steer away from playing his music or using his music at all because of the very strong evidence that he was a pedophile. So when we know that someone like Picasso was an asshole and an abuser and a sadist, um, does that mean that we shouldn't look or talk about his art? I think... Uh, we should consider his art, but there are uh, lots of amazing artists we can consider. The, you know, Picasso was made famous, I guess, under that cult of the, the swarthy male, the domineering male, um, and that time has changed. So maybe viewing it through that lens does make it appropriate. The Standby Response Service provides a coordinated community response to families, friends and communities who have been bereaved through suicide. Standby works in partnership with other local groups and services within the local community with the aim of reducing potential adverse health outcomes and assisting to prevent further suicidal behaviour. We caught up with National Standby Response Service Coordinator Jill Fisher to find out more. Standby is a national program that provides the Standby Response Service, which is a 24-7 response to suicide bereavement or those affected by severe suicide attempts in 16 communities across Australia. It's a community-based approach that involves having regional steering committees who are made up of key people in the region, including those with lived experience and cultural groups who guide the program, the service on the ground is crisis response teams drawn from the local community and trained professional responders who are able to go out at any time of need, no matter where or when the loss occurred, whether that's right at the time or perhaps sometime later or somewhere else where somebody may have lost someone, and responding to suicide in that way, as well as doing a lot of in-service training, uh, community knowledge building, working very closely with communities, being involved in healing camps, being involved in a lot of different initiatives. Remember, the Standby Response Service provides people bereaved through suicide with access to timely support and clear pathways of care via a reliable single point of contact. To find out more about the Standby Response Service and about the specific services that are available in locations across Australia, visit unitedsynergies.com.au or call their national office on 07 5442 4277. The Community Radio Suicide Prevention Project is produced with the support of the Australian Government Department of Health. You're listening to me, Jeff Ebbs, on Fashion by Dad. I'm joined by Claire Tracy-Art in the studio. Claire, you wanted to give a shout-out to someone. I do. I wanted to give a shout-out to all the amazing writers that competed in Chicks in the Sticks this weekend, which is a bike ride to celebrate women in the sport of bike riding, and in particular my amazing friend Nina, who uh, led the pack as she took off, I think, in the women's elite section, pumping the tunes. 
Wow. And so where in the sticks did the chicks in the sticks ride to? Uh, now, I was going to go, but I stayed home, so I can't tell you exactly where it was, ah. uh, but it was in Brisbane. It was in Brisbane. Okay. Well, you've uh, lined up a track to uh, commemorate that, Jalapeno, with uh, Janelle Monet and Farrell Williams. Do you want to tell us about that? That is from the soundtrack to Hidden Figures, which, for those of you that haven't seen the movie, no spoilers, it is about a group of black female mathematicians that were essential to the moon landing um, and engineer actually, Janelle Monet, the singer plays a role in the movie and I thought this was interesting because it challenges my bias about what I thought the great scientific achievements were of our age and who created them and on 4ZZZ you are listening to Fashion by Dad in my shield of glamour it's time to wave my shield of glamour and reveal the blazer of glory. So this week's blazer of glory is the love apple. Have you heard of these, Jeff? Uh, isn't that a name for a potato or is that a ground apple? That's a ground apple. I think there's a tomato that's a love apple. Oh, but anyway, well, that's in, as in far as I've got. In times, Elizabethan times, women would, of the court would grab an apple and peel it and stick it in their armpit and then they'd leave it there for like, you know, a good, Some time. Long, a good long while, let's say. And then Are we talking a day, a week, an hour? I think... You know, more like a week. More like a week. Right. More like a week. And to us, you know, to our sense that, we you know, we've been marketed that smell is terrible, uh, you've got to remember that there wasn't any perfume, deodorant companies trying to sell this idea of cleanliness. They had no concept of bacteria. They thought diseases were, you know, demons or ill winds that infected <laughs> the body. an apple in your armpit for a week, there probably isn't a disease of, of a demon. Well, the, the armpit absorbed all the pheromones and the sweat and then they gave the love apple, this this armpit apple to their intended and it was deeply romantic a, a blazer of glory in the form of courtly love Ooh. I mean the term courtly love is interesting because um, one of the early blazers of glory on Fashion by Dad was uh, Henry VIII painted with his jewel encrusted member as um, Hilary Mantle describes it um, and the of course, Henry killed his second wife on the basis of infidelity and they made up terrible stories about, you know, how she'd had every man in the court, etc. But Hilary Mantle goes at great pains to point out the different strands of love that were going on in a court like that. And she talks about the uh, sort of... the. Uh, timeless devotion so some people would declare courtly love for someone and you know dedicate their life to them more or less do everything that they wanted but there was never any intention of physical consummation and that yeah in the the time of henry the eighth my understanding of courtly love courtly love was that you know you were you were in an arranged marriage and you had to be faithful sexually to that arranged marriage but people would fall in love with Others. Others, um, and it would be a very chaste relationship based around these mm. signs of devotion. Mm. And the intensity of a lot of that uh, sort of Tudor poetry goes with that kind of sublimated desire, doesn't it? 
I, I'm not convinced that... I think it's a bit of fake news there, I reckon. They you reckon? They were all banging. You reckon the, the bawdy old English couldn't keep their pants on? I agree. <laughs> yes. Well, interesting. I mean, in many languages, there are different words for love. You know, there's a word for lust and a word for romance and a word for the kind of love that happens when you've been married to someone for 20 or 30 years. So perhaps we... Uh, Perhaps we're too narrow-minded, but it's a pretty strong urge, isn't it? Well, while I, uh, on our questioning of the patriarchy and the subconscious uh, ideas that we have both are trying to pick apart, there is this idea that, you know, growing up for me as a child of the 80s, that there were, you know, a, a knight would come along and save you and fulfil all your dreams and... As the discourse has changed and, you know, I've travelled through my life and had the privilege to be educated, you know, my point of view around that has really uh, shifted into, you know, valuing meaningful, equal relationships that don't base around, aren't based around one side being a victim and one side being saved by the other. But the next track is a very famous, uh, would you call it a love ballad? Um, I don't know the lyrics well enough to know. I guess so. I mean, you've got the knight there. You've, I'm, you know, spoiler alert, I'm about to tell you the title of the song we're about to play. The knight is in white satin. <laughs> a, blazer, a blazer of glory a all of its own. A blazer of glory. Knights in white satin, but with a modern twist, which is what we're trying to do on this show, uh, remixed by Zed's Dead. Zed's Dead here on the Zed's. Nights in white satin, never reaching the end. Letters I've written, never meaning to send, send. Nights in white lover from Zed's Dead. Thanks to you, Claire Tracy Art. My pleasure. One of your faves? One of my faves. That one was on repeat for quite a while. Had a bit of an addiction to it because there is such an amazing film clip with beautiful animation. Mm, Quite a trippy sort of film clip. People and animals unwinding into cables and tape and all sorts of... And it was, it was my go-to back uh, back in the day when I was uh, not the uh, beautiful, flowery, sober person that I am today, embracing sobriety as a life choice. It was my go-to clip if one of my friends was having a difficult chemical time. I'd put that on and I'd say, watch this and you'll feel much better. Oh, interesting. All right. So on uh, Fashion by Dad a little earlier... Uh, Claire, you uh, talked about uh, chicks in the sticks riding bikes. I've um, found a track from a group called Flowbots called Handlebars in honour of our bicycle riding friends. Uh, Flowbots have also got a new track out, but today we're going to play Handlebars. I can ride my bike with no handlebars, no handlebars, no handlebars. Handlebars from Flowbots, another animated film clip following on from Nights in White Satin. And um, the interesting thing about that story is it's two young dudes who 
part ways at the beginning of the film clip. One goes up a corporate road and the other, you know, creative artist's road. And then the um, corporate person starts to emerge on the television screens and magazine covers in the world of the street artist and it ultimately heads to the lyrics that we just heard there about, you know, I can control everything, my satellite, my satellite. <laughs> As the corporate dude controls armies conquering the world, conquering the planet. Do you think in the future, you know, this fear we have around our corporate overlords uh, not being policed by the many because the technology they possess is so far beyond anything we've encountered in history, uh, do you think that it's going to become a reality or do you think, or do you think it is a reality or do you think the, the voices of the people, of the many, will outweigh the neo-capitalistic society we live in today? Um, in my heart of hearts, fear of fears, I know that it's already a reality that what we call democratic politics is a um, sort of game that's allowed by... It's really corporate feudalism. We live in an age of feudalism where the, the mega-rich, the 700 people who manage the affairs of the globe are really outside the control of sovereign governments. But was ever thus. It's always been a powerful elite who, you know, manipulate things to the extent they can. And there's always been enough cracks and gaps in the world for us to have a life. Other than that, there's been some particularly dark periods where there has been no scope for individual human freedom and so on. And we've gone through a particularly generous period where a large number of us, I was going to say the majority, but the majority of people in a country like Australia or in the US, not the majority of people on the planet. But a lot of us have had a pretty good life and there's been reasonable freedoms. And I think that's coming to an end and we're going into a pretty dark place. But I, I think there's hope. I think that unless we... Um, look for the opportunities to create art, support each other, build community, all of the things that we agitate, educate and organise for on 4ZZZ. Um, those are the things that, you know, give us hope and make, build a future. I mean, I think, unfortunately, the impact that we're having at a global level is so severe that we're going to smash ourselves against the wall a couple of times before we wake up. And the first time is going to be the ugliest because we're going to go from an incredibly affluent lifestyle on a planet with 10, million, 10 billion people to some small percentage of that with a lot of death, decay and horror around I hope not. I, I have hope and I have to say teaching has given me a lot of hope, particularly in design and seeing the incredible enthusiasm and like lack of cynicism that these young students have and the solutions that they come up with. Mm, good, because hope is what we need. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully.